Hi, this is Andrew Corbett and welcome to a very special edition of Finding Truth Matters as we deal with the issue of women in ministry, particularly positions of leadership within the church. This is Women, Everything You Wanted to Know. I'll be back at the end of this to sum it up. My daughter Zoe said, I see what you're doing here, Dad. Zoe was on the keyboard this morning. She said, you've just done a seven-part series on Revelation where you've upset all the Pentecostals. Now you're going to do a teaching on women. You're going to upset all the Reformers. So I said, I'm an equal opportunity offender, sweetie. I don't want to leave anyone unoffended. So let's make sure we cover all our bases. Well, I hope I don't offend you this morning. And it is an important subject. And it's one that I hope I can demonstrate to you that I understand the various ways of looking at this. And it is my hope that we come to a biblical conclusion. So this is going to be about women. And Kim obviously said, you are going to teach about women. I said, yeah, I read a book. It's all good. It's all good. What else is there to know? Not quite. Everything you ever wanted to know. Well, obviously, I'm being a little bit provocative with the title, but I do want to acknowledge that for many people, there is a problem that they have with women in ministry. And one of the reasons why I think we need to address this and look at this is because particularly since we've been in here and we, we are now, fortunately, praise God, we are seeing our prayers answered because we're seeing more people attracted to here on a Sunday. And what has, I guess, surprised me is the number of people who, among those visitors, have, have said to me, not with a mean spirit, but with, with a curious spirit, have said, I was surprised that you have so many women involved in your church particularly from the platform and I'm not used to being asked or even having that challenged and not that they, as I said not that they were doing it in a in a mean way that they were just generally curious had one person ask and and say I thought scripture taught that women were not allowed to do that and I explained my position, and that obviously for them was not adequate, and they haven't been back. So for some people, this is a deal-breaker as far as church goes. So let's see if I can demonstrate to you that I understand what's at stake here. There are verses which do seem to, and in fact I think plainly state, and this is what is pointed out, that women are subordinate to men. And some of these verses make it very clear that this especially applies spiritually and even more specifically when it comes to leadership or government within the church. For example, what do you do with a verse like this? 1 Timothy 2.12 I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And that whole passage in there is one, if you have a look at that, and I encourage you to have a look at that, and I'm, because of the breadth of what we're going to cover this morning, I'm not going to stop and lecture on this. That would take 
considerably longer than the time that we have this morning. But you'll see that, that there's, there's other verses in that section which kind of reinforce that. So what do we do with that? Secondly, since Christ only ever chose and ordained men, it seems that God only ever ordains that men should be leaders, especially spiritual leaders. So what do we do with that? I mean, that's a fact after all, isn't it? Notice the gender of these names. The names of the twelve apostles at first are these. First Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and so on. They were all men. Why didn't Christ choose women? Well, the argument goes that's because only men are called by God to be spiritual leaders. All right. Well, what about those who counter this? Now, they're just two examples. We could look at other examples. For example, out of 1 Timothy chapter 3, which says the qualifications are an elder of an elder are this. Number one, must be the husband of one wife. Now, at the moment in Australia, that's difficult for a woman to fulfill that, if not impossible. And I'm not trying to be silly, but this is one of the things that is used to make the case that women should not have a place in church leadership. All right. What about the other side of it? The case for the role of women within church ministry. How is that case made? Well, the case is made along the following lines. There are verses in the New Testament which state that women are not subordinate to men. Verses like this. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Wow. Not so clear now when we look at the balance of Scripture. So let's have a look at something else. Christ had his ministry made possible by women. So on the one hand, you could say, well, Christ chose 12 disciples. That was the foundation we've seen as we look through the Revelation series. The 12 is not a random number. 12 is the number associated with redemption and the number associated with leadership. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles under the new covenant. Not a random number. All men, but, but, these men did not make the ministry of Christ possible. For example, here's one of the verses, and, and you'll find in the Gospels, it actually names some of these women who it says were funding the ministry of Christ. Not only funding, they were providing meals for him. In, in other instances, they were providing accommodation for him, and they travelled with him. There was a, a small company a small group of women who were as much a part of the band of Christ as the 12 disciples well it says there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee in other words from the beginning huh. ministering to him can a woman minister 
Well, this verse seems to suggest not only can they, but they did. Thirdly, from the, yes, there is a place for women in ministry side of the argument, the first proclaimers of the gospel were women. And women were noted as being ministers. This is kind of a double point, but I want to make this point. It says in Matthew chapter 28 verse 1, which is the account of the resurrection of Christ. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now I I introduced that verse so that now you get the next verse in context. So we have these women who've gone to the tomb of Christ. They had gone to apply some more spices and things on the, the corpse of the deceased Christ. Down into verse 7, it says this. Then go, now this is what, you know, you know in between this story, that, that they, they encounter the tomb is open, like the stone which had been sealed in wax and chained to the, to the tomb entrance has, has been burst open and the stone's way over there and, and it's empty and they come and there's, there's nothing there except the folded uh, headpiece of Christ and the rest of the, the shroud is there as if the body just moved through it, which, is, which would get you thinking. That would, that would provoke some pondering, I would think. And, and as they're there, remember an angel appears. An angel says, he's not here, he is risen. So then we, we, we come to this instruction from the angel, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And so they are instructed, go and proclaim the resurrection of Christ. Women were the first ones to do it. Now we're going to see in a moment that this is extraordinary. Because women were not admitted into a court of law during New Testament times, let alone Old Testament times. Because a woman's testimony was not considered to be valid. And here, the very first and the greatest component of the gospel, the resurrection of Christ, is given to women to be the first proclaimers of. Right. The second part of that other point is that women are noted among the ministers of particularly the list of greetings in Romans chapter 16. In fact, of the seven verses of greetings, there are eight women who are named as ministers of churches. And you could say, well, yeah, but that, that word minister is the word, if you're into Greek... You could say, well, that's just the word diakonos, which we translate deacon. But it's also the word that the Apostle Paul uses mostly to describe himself. A minister, a servant. So we, we come to the opening verse of Romans chapter 16, verse 1. And Paul says this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant. or it's, And that's, that word servant is the word diakonos, which means minister. Of the church of Centraea. And we go on through that list. In fact, if you look through Romans 16, you'll see one of them 
is uh, Junia. And Junia, Paul says in, in, in writing th- these greetings in Romans 16, is of note among the other apostles, which makes her an apostle. And as someone has pointed out, one of the books I was reading that they said the NIV translators could not accept that this was a woman. So they, translate, they, they translated that word junia and any word in Greek, any, any name in Greek that ends in A is female, right? Maria, female, Mario, any, the O is masculine, Mario, male, Maria, female. They said that must be a scribal error. So they add an S, a sigma, to the end of that name and make a junius, which changes the gender from female to male. There is not an ancient manuscript. There is not a manuscript of that text that has junius in any of them. So I just say this to the NIV translators, shame on you for doing that. So we go through that list and we see that there are other female names there and you can, you can check that out. In fact, I count eight in those seven verses. So where do we land? If we were to say, okay, we acknowledge that there are two biblical approaches to the role of women. The people who say that we have verses which point out that men and women can, are now equal. There is no distinction. They can function exactly the same. These people are known as egalitarians and the view is known as egalitarianism. Equal. No distinction. Men can lead. Women can lead. In fact, churches like Willow Creek, and I greatly admire Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels has, uh, about four weeks ago, announced his successor. And he has announced that he is retiring, at the, I think it's the end of next year. And he hands over to his successor. So they've got like an 18-month run-up to the changeover of, of leaders at Willow Creek. And Willow Creek is one of the most influential churches in the world, a 35,000-member church and um, the originators of the Willow Creek Association. It's, it's very, very influential. Bill Hybels has just announced that a woman will be succeeding him as the leader of Willow Creek. She will be assisted by a teaching pastor who is a male, who is in his early 30s, but it is a woman who has been on staff there as his assistant for the last 20 years who will now be the senior minister. So churches like Willow Creek are well and truly egalitarian. And that is, they, they have been shaped by a theologian by the name of Gilbert Bilzekian who uh, has written a lot about this, this way of looking at women in ministry egalitarianism so men and women are equal in every respect thanks to the work of Christ on the cross that's that's egalitarianism the other view is what those from a reformed tradition normally hold to and it's called complementarianism complementarianism and it's the view that men and women 
are different by design. And again, I'm not trying to be silly. Um, I'm, so this is the view that, it, that, that, that God has designed for men to have a role and for women to have a role and together they complement each other in their various roles. That's called complementarianism. All right. Now, as we look at this, you may have already come to your own conclusion. You may have already gone, well, I'm, well, I'm a complementarian or I'm an egalitarian or whatever. Can I encourage us all right now in this space not to go there just yet? In fact, can we please have as our, our lens on, on any controversial topic like this not balance. I mean, someone might say, well, well uh, particularly those that don't like conflict and they want everyone to be happy. Is there anyone here like that? You want to avoid conflict at all costs and you just want everyone to be happy? I would really love to be that. At, at times, I just find that I can't be because sometimes I find people to be so stupid they don't deserve the... because their ideas are dumb. This is what I've discovered. All... People are equal, but not all ideas are. That's why I, I, don't, I don't ever want... If you come up to me and go, well, Pastor, surely there's a balance. Just be careful saying that around me, please. Here's why. Because if you have one really extreme dumb idea up this end and one really dumb up idea up the other end and you just want to be dumb in the middle, I'm just going to think that's dumb. So what if you have one really, really dumb idea at one end and one idea that's true up the other end? Do you still want to be half dumb? That's called being a half wit. You... <laughs> so balance is not our goal. We just want to be balanced. I don't want to be balanced. I just want to be true. I want to be right. So where should we land? Well, at the moment, just come with me on this journey. Let's not land anywhere just yet. Let's have as a commitment that we are going to look at what Scripture says and this is, what, this is the battle we're going to have. We now live in a culture that is so anti-God, anti-Scripture, anti-Christian worldview that when confronted with the biblical worldview, we seem like we're the idiots. We seem like we're out of place. We seem like we're, oh, that's so yesterday. So this is the challenge that, that sometimes we, we are so uh, intimidated by that sort of uh, uh, labelling that we're, we're actually afraid to look at Scripture for what it actually says. So, I hope that truth is what we're after and the pursuit of truth requires that we study the Scriptures with openness and honesty. So that we can do it openly and honestly. So let's, I want to do a brief survey of scripture. Come with me to Genesis chapter 2. Right back to the kind of the very beginning of it all. If you've got an app, it'll be on page 1. If you've got a Bible, it'll be on... Well, my Bible's page 2. From Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see that God designed man and woman to be... I mean, complete the following sentence. To be what? Well, let's have a look 
at what we see here. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. Genesis chapter 2 describes the creation of Adam from a a more detailed perspective than what we have in Genesis chapter 1. So Genesis chapter 1 gives us more or less the executive summary. We then come into Genesis chapter 2. The perspective is different to Genesis chapter 1. The perspective is now um, Eden and... Eden is, a, is introduced to us in chapter 2 as a patch of bare dirt. Now this is in the context of God having already created trees and shrubs and animals and all the rest of it. So just to get that in context, we then are introduced to God bringing Adam into Eden. So Adam was not created in Eden. And there's, there's a whole lot of revelation in this, if you can get it, that God had created the world with trees and vegetables and vegetation, animals and fish and all the rest of it. But there was one patch, probably uh, Dr. Hugh Ross says, several square hundred miles of, of, of just square patch, just vacant patch, where God said, brings Adam in and says, this is the garden I want you to, I want you to look after. I want you to make it and look after it just here. Would have been a huge life mission right there so get that so when it says there was no tree there was no plant it's not that God hadn't created them because Genesis 1 tells us already had but in this part this perspective there was nothing there yet right so that's just the perspective we come down to verse 18 and God says this then the Lord God said it is not good that man should be alone I will make a I will make him a helper fit for him Now, what do we draw from that? Just that verse there. Because we know that from that point, God then uh, brought the animals to Adam and Adam had the opportunity to inspect each one of them. It may have taken months to do, to inspect all of them. And at the end of it, it says Adam... Well, essentially it says, because God says, Adam was still lonely. So over that period of time, then God puts Adam to sleep, takes something out of Adam. Whether it was just physical or whether there was an attribute that was taken out of Adam and God created the woman from that. And it says in that verse, God's intention was to make a woman that would be a helper Fit for him. Fit. Perfectly designed. Someone who, if we take something out of Adam, that now lack will be made up by this woman. Does that make sense? So together, the Bible says Adam and Eve would become one. And together... They would more aptly, even though individually they both reflect the image of God, but together there is an aspect of God that when they come together they more aptly represent. That's why I think there is an ache in every human soul to find a soulmate. Now, 
what do we see from this passage? We should see the obvious. Adam was first. What may not be obvious is that when God created Eve, he took something out of Adam. And as I've said to you, it was at least physical. Something physical was taken. It's described as a rib. But there was something, some attributes taken out of Adam and invested in the woman. What else do we see is that when God brought, and I haven't got all the text here, you can, I'm, I'm hopefully reminding you, not, in, not informing you of anything you haven't seen, but when God brought Eve to Adam, it was, here she is, look after her. And the declaration from Adam was, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It's, it's a beautiful declaration where, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So something came out of man to make the woman. So when he says that and God has brought her to him, it's the very first wedding, by the way. And when God instituted that marriage is between a man and a woman, he wasn't ever thinking that would one day be outdated. Now, I'm not trying to be political. I'm trying to be truthful. And here is the woman brought to Adam, and, and, and she's brought to Adam. Now, I'm, I'm stressing this because it, it, it carries with it a sense, Adam, here she is. Look after her. What do we call that? Protect her. Provide for her. I'm going to use the three Ps. And because Adam had already been walking with God in the cool of the day, it says that God would come down, we read in Genesis chapter 3, to walk with Adam. And this has been going on, I suspect, how long would it take Adam to examine every species of animal? However long that is, months, years? Adam's been doing that. At the end of that day, at the end of it, God would come down in the cool of the day and walk with Adam. That's a pretty good Bible school, isn't it? You would learn a lot walking with God. And now along comes Eve. She hasn't had any of that. And somehow in the, in the provision of God, Adam and Eve are able to communicate with each other. So perhaps language was gifted to them. And Adam would have had not just protector role, not just provider role, because after all, he would have known where the food is he could eat. Because we find... God giving them the, the Lord of all the trees, eat, but just not that one. So Adam's going to go, here, taste this. But because he was intimate with God, and you can imagine the questions Eve would have. Can you imagine the first time she opened her eyes? What a new experience. Everything's new. And then she meets Adam. And, and then... Adam is able to take her and, and, and Eve is to go, who was that? And Adam is to say, that's our maker. What, well, who, who is that? Well, he's the good God. And you can imagine the talks they would have had. So this third P word, protector, provider, priest. Priest in the sense of instructor and one who helps another along in, in, in their spiritual journey. So Adam was the first among equals, but Adam would have just naturally born, 
greater responsibility within that relationship. I hope you can see that. Now, if we go to, and I haven't got this scripture, but I really think it's worth looking at. Please come with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And your New Testament is arranged, the Gospels, then Acts, then the Epistles to the Churches in order of size, largest down to smallest. And then after the churches, it deals with people, and the first people it deals with, let me check, is Timothy, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it is Timothy after Thessalonians. So Thessalonians being the smallest of the church epistles, then Timothy. So we're going to come to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, and let's have a look. Yeah. And, and the verse I used before was verse 11. Let, let me back up here, and it's not on the screen. It says in verse 9, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. I just want to point out that there is a clothing mandate for women in Scripture. Please, women, don't see this as you're, you're to look like as my daughters have individually and variously and independently of each other described my upbringing of my daughters as, oh, Dad, you just want us to look like the Amish. You know, cover the ankles. I mean, all the father said, amen. And, but there is a certain modesty that Scripture prescribes for women, which is different to the standard of the world. I hope you can see that. And it goes on and it says here, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. So this is the verse 12 that we read before. Do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man Rather, she is to remain quiet. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first. So here's the Apostle Paul making the same point. Adam was formed first. But I want you to see the point he makes. Then Eve, verse 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, I know that there are reformed types who go, there you go, I rest my case. But I want you to consider what you've just read. Eve fell into sin because she was tricked. She was deceived. Do you notice what it said about Adam? He was not deceived. And he chose to sin. Now tell me, thank you, tell me who's more culpable in the fall of man. Can you see that? Now I know that there are people who go, well, they're good in there. That's got to be a modern conspiracy of some sort. Can you see that? Adam, see Paul is not saying men are the ants pants in this thing. It's saying a woman is, is meant to be someone who is taught because Adam was first, he was supposed to. Adam was supposed to teach the woman, there's a serpent, God told me, where to exercise dominion over him. If he comes... Don't listen to a thing he says. He's a liar. Adam would have known that. 
And yet knowing that, he sinned. So tell me, who's more culpable? Adam is. See that? All right. What do, what do we see about Eve? Eve was designed by God to be fit, to be, a, to be someone who, who, when God said it is not good for Adam to be alone, not good for man to be alone, God had something in mind. Ah, oh, here's someone who can be his friend, who can be his comforter. And, and, and there is something which, because of the, the, the occasion right now, which doesn't permit me to, to, to actually unpack human sexuality and its incredible beauty and power, because the moment I begin to talk like this, too many of us have already been conditioned by a world that has eroticized human sexuality to a point where you won't even understand what I'm trying to say from the Bible because we've been too conditioned to think differently. So I can't even explore that with you right now. But Eve was meant to be a comfort and a help and a support. And that's what she was designed to do by God. So when we look at the role of women in the Old Testament... It would be too easy to look at perhaps some Middle Eastern cultures today and think, well, that's how women were treated in the Old Testament. And no, they weren't. In fact, can I be so bold as to say, when we see Middle Eastern women, particularly who are enculturated in Sharia law, it bears no resemblance to the way Old Testament times treated women at all. Let me give you some examples from Scripture. For example, we have Sarah, the wife of Abraham, and when, when they had had the incident with Hagar, and, and she said, now send that woman and Ishmael out of this camp. And, and Abraham says, oh, I, can't, I can't do that, that's not right. And, and Abraham goes off for a walk. God appears to him, and in Genesis 21 verse 12, God says this to Abraham in a rebuking manner. He says this, and this fit this in with your view of women in the Old Covenant. He says this, listen to your wife. It's a sharp rebuke from God. Listen to your wife. I, I doubt that, that, there are, that we could find a, a husband here today who has not benefited from listening to his wife. And this was the rebuke that God gave Abram. Listen to your wife. Sarah is telling you the truth. She's telling you what you need to know. We, we come to the time of the judges and we come to this interesting time when Israel was being oppressed before they had kings and God would raise up these mighty men who served as deliverers, who would go out and deliver Israel from their oppressors. And we have this incident where there was a man who a prophet went to and said, God has called you to be that deliverer. And he said, no way. I'm not going out there unless Deborah comes with me. And Deborah, the prophet, said, Something like this, if we translate it like this. Shame on you for not being a man. Now the glory that could have been yours will be given to a woman. And Deborah, 
goes out and leads them. And another woman instigates the end of that battle. The battle was won by women. Hmm. Deborah the Deliverer. Ruth the Redeemed. Boaz. Ruth the Moabite. Not even a Hebrew is given such a prominent role that she now is a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ's incarnation. Esther, one of my favourite women. What a girl. Don't mess with her. She was the one that ultimately avenged the Exodus 17 curse on the Amalekites. When Israel came out of Egypt, they were nearly wiped out by the Amalekites. You remember, God told Moses, lift your hands in intercession and send Joshua into battle. And so off Joshua goes. And when Moses' arms grew tired, Israel began to lose the battle. Remember the story? So Ben and Hur, not Ben Hur, Ben and Hur came. That's a different episode of the movie. Ben and Hur came and lifted his arms. And when they could no longer hold his arms up, they got rocks to pin him in between. And they won, but the Amalekites fled and were not destroyed. And God was ticked. He was ticked with the Amalekites. He said, these people have defied me. They are to be destroyed from the face of the earth. There was something almost DNA-ish about these Amalekites that said, destroy the plan of God. And God said, no one's going to... These people, I declare, shall be wiped out from the face of the earth. So the very first thing when Israel appointed a king, King Saul, the very first mission Saul was given was, now Saul, your king, you have within your power the entire 12 tribes of Israel. Muster an army and go out and fight the Amalekites and destroy them. First mission. First mission. So what does he do? He goes out, has a bit of a... Uh, tete-a-tete with the Amalekites and then invites the king over for afternoon tea the king of the Amalekites over for afternoon tea King Agag Agag, the Agagite and so King Agag comes over and is having lovely afternoon tea and Samuel comes along and says uh, you're supposed to kill all the Amalekites and kill all their animals because their animals had been the subjects of bestiality and there's all sorts of reasons why you don't want animals who are used to human interaction on that level you are supposed to destroy them all what is this bleating of sheep that i hear why haven't you done it and if you remember the story uh, samuel takes a sword and hacks up agag and it's 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 horrific but it's too late because agag agag king agag's descendants uh, some of his children they've already gone they fled i mean you would wouldn't you And later we read in Esther that Haman, the Agagite, descendant of King Agag, the Amalekite, schemed a plot against the Jews. And Esther thwarted that plot. And you remember the story where she says to the king, let my people defend themselves across your empire. And that day, it says, they did. And there was a great slaughter. And King Artaxerxes said to Esther at the end of that day, to his new bride, Sweetie, princess, 
Honey, there's been a lot of bloodshed today. And she says, and she would have been all of 18 or 19 years of age. I know. Can we have one more day at this, please? <laughs> Jeepers, she must have been Hungarian. That's funny, you see, I'm married to a Hungarian girl. Anyway. And she takes another day and she completely gets the job done, thus fulfilling the, the, the declaration of God in Exodus 17. King David battled the Amalekites, he didn't do it. Other kings of Israel battled the Amalekites, they didn't do it. It took a girl to get the job done. Esther, the Avenger, the first, the real Avenger. Not these cartoon characters, the real one. The Proverbs 31 woman is a woman of incredible virtue. Buys property, deals in business transactions and does all kinds of things. So what do we see? The role and place of women in Old Testament times. Here's what a Jewish historian said had become of women at the time of Christ. Women were not allowed to testify in court. In effect, this categorised them with Gentiles, minors, deaf, mutes, undesirables such as gamblers, the insane, usurers, pigeon racers. You've got to watch out for those pigeon racers. Who were also denied that privilege. So women at the time of Christ had been deprecated to a place of lowness. But what happens when Christ comes along? What happens? We read it before. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And what we can at least see from this passage in Galatians 3 is not about, it's not about ministry. It's not about leadership. It is about standing before God. Women do not have to approach God through a man. They do not have to wait in line behind a man. They have equal access to God by virtue of Christ and what he has done. Jesus Christ has done more for women than anyone else in human history. I want you to consider this. This is what has now happened as a result of what the gospel has done. Women are now redeemed. Perfectly redeemed because of what Christ has done. Women enjoy a spiritual status because of what Christ has done. And thirdly, women are given gifts by God because of what Christ has done. This is radical, really radical. But here's where I want to quickly come to some kind of conclusion. In the New Testament, there is a distinction between government, that is, those who are supposed to bear the weight of responsibility, and ministry. Ministry is serving. There is a distinction. And that distinction is that men are called to bear the greater responsibility, just as Adam was. Men are called to lead, protect, provide, be pastors to people. And here's the, the thing we're going to see. I'll tell you now, as a pastor of however long now, 
in my third decade of pastoring, when I have spoken with husbands and wives, I have never, ever, 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 ever had a situation where a husband had perhaps said to me, oh, it's so difficult at home. It's so difficult. My wife just won't let me lead. She just, she's so dominant. And then when I've spoken, and without exception, when I've spoken to the wife in that situation, she has said something like this, I wish my husband would lead. I wish he would be more responsible. I wish he would. I read a poem by Ella Wilcox, who was around the turn of the 20th century. She was a poet, very well-known poet. And in her poem, she talks about a woman who talks about the, the joy of being pursued by a man and eventually walking down that aisle and, and, and being married to a man and how happy she was. And then the moment she married, the pursuit stopped. And the man said, but I'm, I'm too busy to continue the pursuit of romance because I have a job to do to provide for us and to care for our family and to do these things. And, and the woman in this poem says, but can't we just go out for a meal? Can't we spend time together? Can't we do something? Oh no, I'm way too tired because of all my business through the day to be able to do that with you. And Ella Wilcox says in this poem that this woman's heart began to break because her husband was not taking the lead in the relationship. And I, I think there's a parallel here. Men are called to bear a greater responsibility. And in talking, my, as I polled my daughter on this and getting some research about, tell me, where are young men at today? And she said, Dad, the young men that I know are told they're not, they're not supposed to lead. They're not allowed to lead. They're told women can do everything as equally as them and they should just shut up and get used to it. And can I tell young men, that is not what God's word says, but that may be what the world says to you. So here's where I want us to come on this journey. Ultimately, all ministry is under and unto Christ. Whether you're a man or whether you're a woman, do it for Christ and under Christ. Can women teach and preach in this church? I think if we looked at the context in which Paul is talking to Timothy, it's the Ephesian church. In the Ephesian church, men on one side, women on the other, they would come together. Women were shouting across the aisle. Paul says, hey, women, just hang on a minute. Don't do that. Keep quiet. And you'll see a context there. You'll see the same thing in Corinthians. But can a woman teach and preach? We see Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 11 and says, when a woman prophesies in church, she's to have her head covered. Don't worry about the head covering bit. Just note that he said a woman is exercising her gifts and a ministry in a church meeting. Can a woman teach and preach? Well, they did. Priscilla taught Apollos, one of the, considered one of the greatest orators of the New Testament. 
can a woman teach and preach? Well, they have done throughout history, and the world is better for it. Thousands and thousands of people have come to Christ. There is a parallel between the church and the home, and in the home, the husband is meant to be that one who carries the greater responsibility. The Greek word is kephale, head, the one who bears the greater responsibility. And in a church, I think men need to step up and men need to bear more responsibility. Does that mean women can't bear responsibility? Well, obviously not. Because women do bear responsibility. Do you know what this church would look like if women didn't function in this church? It would be a disaster. It would be a disaster. The key roles in this church... Many of them are done by women. And, and I think biblically we are going to find that God gifts and calls women. And if he gifts and calls them and then says, ah, but you can't use it. Don't we have to go, well, that would be, that'd be very odd. But if we can see that Proverbs 31 describes a woman who is able to function, but there's reference to her husband is in the gate. And that means the gate of the city where he bore even greater responsibility than just his family. And so there's a responsibility here. And this is what I think we will see in Scripture. God clearly called women in the book of Acts we read about it, in Paul's greetings we read about it, who preached and taught. And they preached and taught men. And if you, th if you say, well, women can't do that in the congregation, but they can go out and teach Sunday school, I'm going to ask you, how is that consistent? Women can't teach and preach in church, but they can go to the mission field and teach foreigners. I'm going to ask you the question, how is that consistent? And if you can't justify that, then I'm going to say, maybe it's because intuitively we know God has gifted and called women to fulfill a role that biblically we we see described, but we also see safeguards. And the safeguard is essentially this. Men are expected and supposed to bear the greater responsibility. So if we want to understand the role of women in the church today, we actually end up trying to figure out, well, what are men supposed to be doing? It's one of the reasons why we have a pastoral care team headed by a woman, Donna Hill, because Donna's gifted to do it. We have a church administrator who is a woman who's very gifted to do it. We have a church treasurer who's a woman. We have a church secretary who's a woman. And we have men who I trust, who are elders, who are called by God to carry a greater responsibility. We will have women who teach and preach and I will tell you now that they are under my authority to do it. Would you please stand with me? Father, we want to be a church where we celebrate the various gifts that you give to people. We want to be a church where we celebrate what you have done in the lives of women, what you have done in the lives of men. And Father, I pray for every woman in this church who, who perhaps has felt like she's not allowed to take on a role of 
responsibility, a role of leadership, a role of exercising her gifts. And I pray, Lord, that there would be a new freedom that she experiences, plus clarity, plus the safeguards, the protection of knowing that she's under authority and she's, she's able to function with a freedom and a liberty that comes from knowing that there are those who are watching her back, who are covering her. And Father, I pray for the men of this church that we would treat women with kindness, with a sense of godliness, that we won't treat women as less. We won't treat women as a piece of meat. But Father, we would see young men in this church who become stronger and more able to carry responsibility and to love and to care and to protect as you've called them to do so. And I pray that in this church we can see men and women working together so that people come to know Christ and those who already know Christ can come to know him more sweetly and more deeply in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Well, thank you for listening to this presentation on women, everything you wanted to know, the role of women in ministry and in leadership. And I trust that you have been well enriched and informed. Well, we might add to the presentation the thought from Acts chapter 2, where it says, prophesied by Joel, quoted by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, and in the last days it shall be that God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I'll pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Of course, Philip the evangelist was noted to have four daughters who are each prophetesses. This is highly unusual of these women were not expected to speak and I hope that you can see there is a distinction between ministry and government. For more interesting articles and audios, visit findingtruthmatters.org. I'm Andrew Corbett. Thanks again for listening.